Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the Australian National University. And today is Monday the 19th of February. Now, actually, we released our first episode back um, for over three months. Just yesterday, I had a chat with Richard Maud, reviewing 2023 and looking ahead to 2024. And you can tell by the fact that it's the following day that I'm re-energized uh, and, and really keen to, to get the conversations going as quickly as possible. And for this episode, I want to talk about Indonesia. While there's no question of the importance of Indonesia to Australia's interests, it remains, sadly, a country that too few of us understand or pay close attention to, including in the foreign policy community and, sadly, including me. Indonesia just had an election, however, and later this year, a new president will take office. So this is an ideal juncture to consider not just the election, but the legacy of the outgoing president, Jokowi, and what we might expect going forward. And to educate me today, I'm delighted to welcome Aaron Connolly to the podcast. Aaron is a senior fellow for Southeast Asian politics and foreign policy at IISS, the International Institute for Strategic Studies. He leads IISS research on Southeast Asian politics and foreign policy and is based in Singapore. Prior to joining IISS, as many of you will remember, he was the first director of the Southeast Asia Project at the Lowy Institute. He's also worked at CSIS in Washington, in the private sector, and been a Fulbright Scholar and Visiting Fellow at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies in Jakarta. Aaron, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me on fairly short notice, I must say. Thanks, Darren. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. Long time, long time listener and first time caller, so I'm happy to be on the podcast. Splendid, splendid. Well, let me start by setting the scene and perhaps channeling not just me, but many of my listeners and give what is probably an insufficiently informed point of view on what's been happening in Indonesia. We have the outgoing president, Jogo Widodo, President Jokowi, who is finishing up his second five-year term, and he's constitutionally prevented from recontesting a third election. Now, before, before we get to the election itself, I would say I've got three big observations about his legacy as president from the attention I've paid. First, he seems like a fairly nice guy. He came from very humble origins. And his political success in Indonesia has, to me, embodied a somewhat surprisingly mild form of populism. And I maybe have Narendra Modi in the background as a comparator uh, when I say that. Two, he has had a strong focus on domestic issues during his time in office, especially economic development via infrastructure and healthcare. And the results have been pretty decent, solid, if not outstanding economic growth, a generally stable political and social order, at least from what I can tell. And at least I expect partially as a result of that, a very high approval rating for an outgoing president. And third, on the foreign policy domain, I would say that foreign policy hasn't seemed to be much of a focus for him. Yes, of course, he's a fierce guardian of Indonesia's sovereignty, but he hasn't come across to me as very forward-leaning as a statesperson. You might say, actually, he has really embodied or perhaps even reinforced Indonesia's mostly introverted and cautious strategic personality. Now, from an Australian perspective, this has all been great. Jokowi has been a stabilising force for the region, Indonesia has been stable, and he has been amiable towards Australia. Now, Aaron, first question, how 
off the mark or on the mark is that as a potted summary? How would you correct it? How would you add to it? Yeah, no, actually, I think that's quite good. I think if you were to take those points one by one on Jokowi's personality, you know, this is something that has really appealed to a lot of Indonesians and I think actually charmed a lot of foreigners as well. When we talk about his character, something Jokowi said in 2014 always struck me, which was that he had the face of a villager and he attributed that to his, his election to that, that he appeared to be somebody who Indonesians could see themselves in. He didn't appear to be one of these grand elites in Jakarta with houses in Menteng, who they, they really felt quite distant from. And so he maintained that kind of humble personality through his, through his time in office. But he matched that with a kind of backbone of steel. And Jokowi was just regularly underestimated throughout his two terms in office. You know, one of his advisors told me, as we began to see some changes in the way that he approached Indonesian politics in his first term, that this was somebody who had a lot more Putin in him than people realized and meant that as a compliment. This was, of mm-hmm. course, before the invasion, but yeah, was, meant, <laughs> was meant to indicate that this is somebody who actually was quite firm and was prepared to take quite tough measures against people who he regarded as his opponents and, and perhaps to cross some of the lines of democratic niceties as he saw them. And so there's that. I I would also say, in terms of the policies, the infrastructure push that he launched in his first term has turned out to be incredibly popular with Indonesians. And so, you know, for your listeners who who haven't uh, read the articles and and seen the evidence on social media, uh, he's spent uh, a lot of money, uh, most of it uh, Indonesian money, on building massive amounts of transportation infrastructure, toll roads, airports, seaports. And this has given Indonesians a real sense of Indonesia becoming a wealthier country. When it comes to sort of human development indicators and and things like that, we can talk about this a bit later, he hasn't been as successful. But there's this feeling amongst Indonesians that he's led Indonesia's development, and that's been very popular. And then on foreign policy, I, I, I agree with what you say, but I think it's helpful and maybe instructive to harken back to the 2014 campaign which he ran against Prabowo Subianto, who's just been elected president. But in some ways, he and Prabowo were, were sort of shadow boxing that campaign. And Jokowi also seemed to be, they, they weren't criticizing each other directly. And Jokowi also seemed to be shadow boxing with SBY, the president he was running to replace. So SBY was this former general who'd been educated in America, spoke fluent English, and he was really known by the end of his term for spending a lot of time on what he called summit diplomacy. And this was, of course, a lot of the multilateral summits that Indonesia was hosting at the time, but seen as someone who was spending a lot of time looking for the approval of outsiders, of foreigners through this kind of summit diplomacy agenda. And Jokowi, very early in his time in office, outlined an agenda which he called down-to-earth diplomacy. So it's sort of a polar opposite from summit diplomacy. It sounds better in the Indonesian, it's diplomacy membumikan. And this was meant to be a greater focus on things like consular cases, on trade, uh, on attracting investment, things that would make a difference in the lives of ordinary Indonesians who didn't really see the benefit of hosting big summits in Bali. Bread and, and butter again, foreign policy, basically. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and this, again, endeared him to, to, to Indonesian people. And so I think he would say he, he focused on foreign policy, just he focused on the aspects of it that, that delivered for the Indonesian people more than his predecessors did. His, his predecessors, by the way, especially Martin Nadalagawa, who was SBY's foreign minister, strongly disagree with this assessment and say they focused on those things too. But he had a more limited vision of foreign policy. 
Okay, well, let's turn to the election. You, you've already um, mentioned that the presumptive winner uh, is Prabowo Subianto, who is the current defence minister in Jokowi's administration. As you said, he lost the 2014 and also the 2019 elections to President Jokowi, even claiming that the elections had been rigged. Prabowo seems to have won quite handsomely, very likely avoiding the need for a runoff because he'll get more than 50% of the vote. Importantly, Prabowo's vice president running mate is Jokowi's son, Gibran. And this is where I need help understanding cleavages in Indonesian politics. My understanding of the previous election in 2019 is that the primary cleavage was religion. Muslim regions voted for Prabowo, especially the more religious Muslims, while moderate Muslims and non-Muslims tended to favour Jokowi. This time, the nominee from Jokowi's own party, PDIP, Ganjar, did poorly. So my inference is that Prabowo was able to hold his initial support and then attract some of Jokowi's broader coalition. And of course, this makes me think of the infamous Obama-Trump voters in the United States. And so I wonder about the identity of the typical swing voter, shall we say, in Indonesia. And of course, I also wonder how someone who seemed to be a bitter rival of Jokowi previously in those elections ended up in his cabinet and with his support in this election, it would seem. Now, I expect personality is going to feature a lot in your answer, but can you introduce me to Indonesian politics and talk me through what the major cleavages are? Left, right, urban, rural, religious, secular, young, old, elites, masses. How should I understand these cleavages? What model should I bring to this? And do these map onto the major political parties? And how does all of this sort of help us understand Prabowo's political trajectory and this election result? Yeah, sure. No, I think the the fundamental truth here that this election has demonstrated is that Jokowi is a singular phenomenon in Indonesian politics. And he really was the force behind this election and the way that voters made their decisions in this election, at least the majority of voters. But if you want to take a step back and talk about the composition of the electorate, this is, it's a big country, over 270 million people. There's no real left wing. There hasn't really been a left wing in Indonesia since 1966. And we can go into the reasons for that if if you're interested, but it's also a very young country. And so it's not a country with a a real strong memory of half the voters are under the age of 40. And so Mm -hmm. it's not a country with really strong memory of either that tumult in the 60s or of the Suharto years and in which Prabowo built his early career. It's 87% Muslim, about half of which is would be considered moderate. The Indonesian term that we prefer is abangan. So it's 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 never a good idea to call someone's religion moderate, right? <laughs> sure. no, no one wants to be known as a, a moderate in that context. But it is a distinctive of kind of approach to Islam, which Indonesians tend to call Islam Nusantara. So this kind of archipelagic Islam, which tends to be more Sufi animated and more tolerant. And then about half in, in the Indonesian Indonesian people are, Indonesian Muslims are becoming more conservative over time. About half are more conservative Muslims. And that mostly manifests its, itself not in politics, but in sort of social attitudes and the way people dress, things like that, piety, as opposed to Islamic politics. The, the most important Abangan movement in Indonesia is Nadlatul Ulama, which is a real force in Indonesian politics. And this is really more than an organization. It is a, a social movement. Many people go to Nadlatul Ulama schools or they go to a Nadlatul Ulama mosque. And that tends to be more Abangan, more moderate than the alternatives, the biggest one of which is Muhammadiyah, which tends to be a more middle class, pious 
form of Islam, and people will have gone to Mohammedan schools or gone to go to Mohammedan mosques or might go to a Mohammedan hospital or a Mohammedan university. So they'll have more of an affiliation with Mohammedan through these choices that they make in their life. But it's not a kind of 100% all or nothing, and some people will go to, to mosques from both. But that is also a big political force in Indonesia, if not as big one as Nadlatul Ulama. The traditional way of breaking down Indonesian politics in this reformasi era since 1998 has been to divide Indonesian political parties into the secular nationalist parties, of which there are now five, and they account for around 70% of the lower house seats in the current legislature, and then into two groups, one being the Islamic-based parties, of which there are two, both of them are affiliated with either Nadlatul Ulama or Muhammadiyah, and they account for about 17% of the legislative seats. And then finally, two Islamist parties, which account for only about 12% of the seats in the legislature. And the distinction here is that the Islamic-based parties are affiliated with these Islamic organizations, but they don't necessarily advocate Islamic law as a matter of doctrine. The Islamist parties, of course, do and tend to be seen as a, a little bit more harder line. Mm-hmm. But the truth about Indonesian politics is that this is a little bit of a false distinction because actually Indonesian politics is a cartelist system. And so parties run to get elected to the legislature or they run to get on the ticket for the president or vice president, and then they all cooperate afterwards. And really they're cooperating and extracting rents from the state, distributing patronage to their supporters. And you know this was actually a point of real controversy in the course of this election because Jokowi did this very efficiently and very effectively in throwing support to the Prabowo and to his son Gibran and their campaign for the, for, the, for the presidency and vice presidency. And so there are Islamists who are in these secular nationalist parties and there are nationalists in the Islamist parties. And it all gets a little bit mixed up because in this very consensus-driven system and this very cartelist system, the um, ideological discipline in these parties is very loose. And so in the legislature, for example, if you want to get anything done, any law passed, you really need an extremely broad consensus. Most laws are passed with approval from all parties in the legislature. And so that requires a kind of approach to compromise and to lawmaking. Some would describe as very Indonesian, and that really drives a lot of this kind of attitude toward, toward political parties. It, it's interesting to note that in this election, the support for individual political parties didn't change very much. And I think part of that, just from talking to Indonesian voters on the ground last week, is because a lot of Indonesian voters didn't see a real difference in voting for one political party or another, but they might have an affiliation or they might know somebody who is in one of the political parties or they have a particular affinity for a particular politician. And and so it doesn't change a lot because uh, those social dynamics aren't really changing a lot. They're not really responding to anything that a party did in office in terms of policy. Uh, They're responding to more of their social networks as opposed to ideological differences. And is it fair then to say that the typical Indonesian swing voter, I mean, there are many of them, like much more than you might think of in the US Mm. where you're competing for 10% of the electorate at most. It sounds like what you're saying, that could be a lot more of the electorate if they're not hewing to ideological values or other kind of identity-based or values-based kind of logics for for their affiliation. Is Is that correct? Yeah, and in this election in particular, and actually the last two elections between Prabowo and Jokowi were really driven by personality at the top of the tickets. And so Nadla Tualama actually played a really big, important role in mobilizing support from Abangan Muslims for Jokowi. That was key. But it was the appeal of Jokowi's personality and, again, the sense that people could see themselves 
in Jokowi, if even if they were a sort of poor villager in Java, and they felt like, to some extent, his achievement of the presidency and his ability to get into the palace represented them and reflected uh, their aspirations. That seems to have driven a lot of support for Jokowi in the previous two elections, and his support for Prabowo in this election seems to have directed a lot of his supporters to go over to Prabowo. So I think what you said earlier, there being a kind of Obama to Trump voter, there's some truth to that, but it was because Jokowi licensed it. So it would be almost as if Obama had in 2016 endorsed Donald Trump, which is a, a sort of scenario that none of us can fathom. But in Indonesian politics, it was possible. And that was additionally attractive, whereas in the US or in Australia, that might have really turned some people off. That might have suggested that Jokowi had given up his principles. In Indonesia, it appealed to a lot of people, not all of Jokowi's closest aides, some of whom abandoned him because he did this, but for a lot of people, they saw this as a sign of reconciliation. It was a kind of a perfect ending to this story. Uh, and that sense of reconciliation, especially in this very consensus-based system, appealed to a lot of people. And that appears to have driven support for the pair as well. Let's hold on that because there's another interpretation of that, which I've seen expressed um, in the aftermath of this election and during the campaign, which you know, expresses concern about the health of Indonesia's democracy. Uh, and perhaps this is strongest among educated Indonesians and, and many of us looking on from outside um, who worry about the support that Jokowi uh, gave uh, to Prabowo. Um, and I kind of, in reading and, and listening to podcasts about this, I've kind of I sort of extracted two major strands of concern, which I'll put to you. The first relates to the integrity and or the misuse of institutions. I understand the Constitutional Court gave a special ruling, the change in elections law to enable Jokowi's son to run when he was otherwise too young. And the Chief Justice is Jokowi's brother-in-law and Gibran's uncle, which pretty clearly a conflict of interest. There are also allegations that um, Prabowo's campaign benefited more materially, not just from the support of Jokowi, but perhaps in terms of resources and the backing of the state getting involved in the election. And there, are, have, there have been concerns that go back further in time under Jokowi's leadership that other institutions have been weakened. One that I have read about was the Corruption Eradication Commission and, and weakening by Jokowi. So that, that's the first set of concerns. And the second set of concerns looks more forward into what life might be like under Prabowo himself, because he has a somewhat checkered history. He was the head of special forces under the Sakato dictatorship, and there are unresolved questions around his involvement in alleged human rights violations that go back some time. He obviously tried to challenge the results of the 2014 and 2019 elections when he didn't win. And so there is a fear that he will have less time and respect perhaps for liberal democratic rules and norms as president. And it's worth remembering at this point that, of course, as you said, Indonesia is a young democracy only since 1998. And prior to that, Suharto had been a dictator for 31 years. And so there's, I guess, those of us sitting here in places like Australia get worried about the fragility of, of, of the electoral and, and democratic institutions. So let me, I've got these, put these two concerns on the tables. So let's take them one by one, starting with your assessment of the conduct of the campaign and the role played by Jokowi in boosting Prabowo. What's your read on the evidence to date and is that overshadowing his legacy or will it overshadow his legacy, do you think? Yeah, I think, again, the first thing to say about this election is that Jokowi's support for Prabowo really made the difference. And, and by that, I primarily mean the appearance of putting his son on the ticket was a very clear indication of who Jokowi was backing. 
And so although he officially didn't endorse the Prabowo Gibran pair, it was no mystery to Indonesians who he was backing, given that his son was on the ticket. And I think that really made the difference, much more than what was also going on in the background, really generous raises for civil servants. And civil servants are really important still in Indonesian politics. It's one of the ways that Suharto exercised power was through civil, through the civil service and through really generous subsidies for the civil service. And then also through what's known in Indonesia as Bansos. So this is sort of social aid. There were cheap groceries that were distributed in the week before the election. Some of Prabowo's people have pushed back and said this happens every February. But it, it's clear that there was a lot of social aid that was directed at people to it was effectively what in Westminster systems we call an election budget or an expansionist mm-hmm. budget. In other systems and in Indonesia, this was seen as tilting the scales in favor of the incumbent or the incumbent's choice to succeed him. And so his opponents cried foul on this and really took issue with it. But again, I think that was less important than the appearance of Jokowi's support for Prabowo by putting his son on the ticket. That was that was actually the real key. But let's talk about, you know, what you described earlier as this the sort of the diminution of the independence of national institutions in of state institutions in Indonesia under Jokowi. Because when he first came to office, you know, many people thought that he would be a big supporter of human rights and democracy. He came up through a system that had been created after the fall of Suharto, and in which it would have been very difficult to imagine someone like Jokowi becoming president prior to that system being being put in place. And so people thought he would be a defender of that system. What we actually learned fairly quickly within the first couple of years of Jokowi's presidency, not just through you know the executions of the two Australians, Andrew Chen and Yoran Sukumaran, but also through the way that he handled domestic politics, was that really wasn't going to be how he governed. So one of the first things that he and really his most important minister, Luhut Panjaitan, in some ways is kind of the prime minister, even though that's not a, a post in Indonesia, but was his top aide, his consigliere, who managed a lot of these maneuvers. One of the first things that they did was use the state administrative courts, which are controlled by the Minister for Law and Human Rights, to throw the leadership of individual parties to allies in those parties. So a number of parties had big splits about whether or not to support Jokowi or not. And those splits were almost always decided in favor of the, the, the side of that party that wanted to support the administration. And so that was kind of our first indication. Tom Power at the ANU has done great work on this, sort of cataloging the way in which this developed over time. Another big change, Jokowi felt early on in his presidency that he was being attacked and undermined by the police force. And he wanted to make sure that that wasn't going to happen again. So he put people who are politically loyal to him in charge of the police force, especially Tito Karnavian, who had headed the uh, anti-terror unit, Densus 88, that went after the Bali bombers and who's been a good friend of Australia. He's now the Home Affairs Minister and also Acting Coordinating Minister for Politics, Law and Security. But he had been a big supporter of Jokowi. And that raised some allegations on the part of Indonesians that actually the police were sort of performing the same role that the military performed under Suharto. This what is known in Indonesian as duifunksi, the dual function, supporting him politically, but then also playing a traditional law and order role. And so that led to some challenges between the, the military and the police, which have always had a rivalry, and Jokowi was then able to really tame the military as well, partly by appointing Prabowo as defense minister, who had longstanding personal relationships with the people who succeeded him as commander of the special forces. So this developed over 10 years where a number of these state institutions, not just, as you said earlier, the Corruption Eradication Commission, the Elections Commission, but also the police, the military, the state administrative courts have been co-opted by Jokowi. And so whereas these institutions 
like the police and the military sometimes acted out in ways or undermined the president in ways that were problematic before, they were still independent. They acted in their own interest, but they didn't necessarily act in the interest of a president. Under Jokowi, they act in the interest of the president, of the incumbent. And that is what is more problematic about Jokowi's legacy, not necessarily the, the social assistance or the raises to civil servants that his opponents in this election were crying foul about. And it's, it's a legacy that he is now handing over to Prabowo Subianto, who, unlike Jokowi, doesn't come from a sort of humble, non-security-related background, was the commander of the special forces under Suharto and did allegedly attempt a coup in 1998 after his father-in-law, Suharto, stepped down and had to be disarmed outside of the palace and then spent three years in exile after being dishonorably discharged from the military. So all these tools that Jokowi has developed, has sharpened the way that he has diminished the independence of state institutions over time, those are now in the hands of someone who many Indonesians regard as much less prudent in their use. Yeah, and I, I definitely my follow-up question is going to be apropos, but I don't know if you can even answer this, but... This is all quite a surprise to me. I've not read a great deal. I, I did some research around the election about this. And you draw, I draw a contrast with another close friend of Australia, India, where there's a lot of attention paid mm. to some of the less savoury aspects of governance in India under Narendra Modi. And around the world, I mean, certainly the United States, We, I heard... Some of, the, some of the phrasing that you used to describe his tactics, I thought, mm, Donald Trump would love to bring the FBI and, 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 the, and the military, and he believes the, the sort of the officer levels, the, the, the grunts are with him and just wants to get rid of the leadership. And so am I correct that this does not not get a lot of attention? I mean, are you, are you presenting sort of a, I mean, a view that is, is, is particularly controversial? Or I just can you sort of discuss a little bit about why this doesn't seem to me to permeate through the international communities and observers? I mean, is it a case of degree? Or is it just that Jokowi's personality and his otherwise, the otherwise stable presidency has meant that it hasn't really stuck its head out of the, and, and become prominent? Yeah, I think there's a, a few different factors, some of which are common to the other examples that you mentioned, some of which aren't. One big factor... Just to take a step back, I would say this is not controversial anymore. If you speak to any Indonesia specialist, they can tell you about these, these dynamics. It was controversial for a while. And there were a number of defenders of Jokowi in the press and in academia for many years, especially in his first term and in the sort of immediate aftermath of his reelection. I think partly because they saw the alternative as much worse, because Jokowi mm-hmm. had run against Prabowo in 2014 and 2019. And they said, okay, yes, Jokowi is doing these things, but in an instrumentalist way, they saw it as, well, it's okay if it's to defeat Prabowo. I remember going to a lecture at the ANU right after Jokowi won election the first time in 2014 by two prominent Indonesia scholars. And one of them said, you know, whatever else happens in a Jokowi presidency, Indonesians owe him a debt of gratitude because he prevented a Prabowo presidency. And of course, now we have Jokowi delivering the presidency to Prabowo. But because of that kind of polarized climate, which many analysts and journalists wrapped themselves up in in 2014, there was this kind of attitude that Jokowi was special and we should evaluate him by different standards than other politicians in Indonesia or elsewhere around the world. I think the other other factor is just Jokowi is popular. And so his approval ratings are nearly 80%. This is a course of action that many Indonesians haven't taken great issue with. And so the White House's statement last week was that the United States was congratulating Indonesia on a successful election and robust participation. Uh, And when 
they were quizzed about this and said Prabowo Subianto has this checkered record. The White House spokesman, John Kirby, basically said, well, we have to respect the democratic will of the Indonesian people. And of course, there's, there's some truth to that. This was a democratic decision to elect Prabowo and to elect Jokowi twice. And the, then finally, I would say Jokowi has been good for Australia. Jokowi has, I think, not been bad for the United States or its allies more generally in terms of great power politics. We can talk more broadly about, you know, at the margins, was he leaning towards China or the U.S.? But at best, this was at the margins, right? It wasn't as though he was throwing Indonesia into the Chinese camp or anything like that. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's perhaps partly been overlooked because of that. And then finally, it's been a kind of soft diminution of democratic norms. And so Jokowi's defenders would say, well, look, it's not as though he's disappeared anyone. He's not tortured anyone. Uh, this is not sort of a return to the Soharto years. He has jailed people on occasion for statements that were critical of him. Uh, I shouldn't say that uh, he hasn't jailed them. The, the police have charged people is, for statements that were critical, particularly of his supporters. There's a, one in particular entertainer, Ahmad Dani, who's very controversial and had called Jokowi's supporters idiots and was done on hate crime charges for that. So there have been instances like that, but they're isolated. So I think people with his supporters would say, look, to the extent that this is a problem under Jokowi, it's been a very soft problem. The problem is now all of these tools that have been sharpened in this way are now being handed over to Prabowo, and no one really knows what that means for Indonesian democracy going forward. Well, yeah, so let's let's stick on that last point. And I'm reminded, I was listening to a podcast a few days ago, Michael Fullilove, your former boss at the Lowy Institute, was interviewing the FT's Gideon Rackman, and, and they were talking about the prospect of Trump coming back to office and how bad that might be. And, and Rackman said, look, yes, there are going to be problems, but I find it hard to believe that the United States is going to, to become this authoritarian state. There are too many centres of power. There are too many just different actors who can frustrate and, and will push back and will just deem unacceptable if Trump goes too far. And I would add to that that you know, Trump supporters just don't seem to be organised enough to be able to use the levers of power as effectively as they would need to to really do something dramatic. Not saying bad things can't happen, but I think there's reason to be not too pessimistic. And so this brings me to Indonesia. Like you, 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 now the new president has a checkered history, cut his teeth in a dictatorship, was in the military, had challenged an election. So there's all these warning signs of what he might do with the levers of power that have been that Jokowi has helped him acquire. But Indonesia has also moved on, right? And I'm wondering, this was an election I understand that was really about campaigning for the youth vote, and. It just, I, I wonder you know, how, what young people's expectations are for democracy. And, and can we be a bit less pessimistic, maybe slightly more sanguine about the ability of the Indonesian system to return to anything close to a Sahato-style set of gov- type of governance? I, I mean, so can I sort of, one, invite you to, to say, do we think Prabowo is, has changed? But more broadly, how does the system now going to interact with his instincts, even if they might be somewhat problematic? Yeah, no, these are great questions, and they're not necessarily ones we have answers to. If we take a step back and we think about Prabowo, I think we owe it to honest analysis and to Prabowo to to evaluate him as a complete person. And so, yes, he does have this checkered history as a general in Kopassus under Suharto. And just to go into a little bit more detail on that, it's worth remembering. He was head of, commanded a, a task force known as Team Rose that disappeared students during the protests against Suharto's rule in the last days. 13 of those students never returned and are still missing. He claims he returned everyone unharmed, and to the extent that those students are missing, it wasn't something that he did, and also that he was just acting under orders. So that is quite a stark history to, to be put up against. 
But it's also worth remembering, Prabowo comes from one of Java's most storied families. His grandfather was the founder of Indonesia's central bank. His father was a prominent minister under Suharto, who engaged, led a lot of the economic reforms. And Prabowo himself, because his grandfather was participated in a rebellion against the central government in the 1950s, was mostly educated overseas. He speaks fluent German, French, and English. And he will be the most cosmopolitan president that Indonesia has ever had. And so if you want to extrapolate from any part of his history, you can imagine different Prabowo's showing up as president on different days. And, and we don't necessarily know which one will show up most of the time or on any given day. It could be the Kopassus general and, and the candidate in 2014 and 2019 who ran as someone who is going to be a, a much tougher kind of special forces figure leading the country. Uh, or it could be that quite cosmopolitan figure who has a more knowledge of the world and experience of the outside world than any Indonesian president to date. Uh, and we just don't know who will show up. What's interesting about this campaign and, and what you said about the youth vote is that many, again, many Indonesians weren't old enough to be familiar with the events of 1998. And they've been not suppressed, but they're not often talked about in Indonesia in the kind of way that they might have been if they had happened in Australia or the United States. There's been a kind of decision to move on. And as many of the people who were involved in the late Suharto years took up key positions in Indonesian politics, and also many of them now run media organizations, there's been a decision to talk less about that period and to talk more about the present. And so when Prabowo launched his campaign this year, with these AI-generated cartoon images that made him actually look a little bit like a, a toddler, a, a, very, a very spry toddler who sort of dances and runs through the streets. That was, I think, really compelling for a lot of young people who weren't familiar with his past and didn't see the, the contrast. And that appears to have really energized his supporters in a way that, that seems to have been very successful. I, I joked with American friends that really Biden should try this. Perhaps Biden and Trump <laughs> should both try this if they want to look like spry young, younger men. I'm not sure it would work in a, in a society like the United States or Australia where the press is much more open and would sort of call, call these things out in a different way. Well, let's stick with the theme of a, of a Prabowo presidency and, and what we might expect. And let's go straight to foreign policy, I think. There is already quite a bit of evidence to suggest that Prabowo is going to be more activist in foreign policy than Jokowi. What we think of as, <laughs> as activists, perhaps less the bread and butter stuff. Uh, and I'm thinking especially of the splash he made at the Shangri-La Dialogue, your own event at IISS last year with his own peace plan for, for Ukraine. Um, not something I would normally expect an intervention from, from an uh, Indonesian statesperson. So if Jokowi reinforced a, a more introverted and cautious strategic personality, Prabowo seems to offer something different. Can he, will he shift Indonesia in the world, perhaps to be more ambitious or activist as a rising power? And what would that even mean? Like, what are the kinds of areas in which he would want Indonesia to do more? Uh, what kind of objectives would he be trying to achieve? You know, it's, it's interesting. Prabowo is much more comfortable on the world stage than Jokowi was, especially early on. I don't know that that necessarily translates into a more activist foreign policy on his part. The personality does not necessarily match the policy, and foreign policy was not a big issue in this campaign. Prabowo's opponent, Anis Baswedan, actually did 
gently criticize Jokowi for leaning too close to China and say that he wanted to reorient Indonesian foreign policy in a different direction that was popular with his Islamist base. And it also was intended to appeal to people who might remember that Anis was actually a former Fulbright scholar who studied in the U.S. and to sort of get himself out of the trap of, of only appealing to the Islamists. Prabowo didn't really do that. He didn't sort of indicate that he was going to change Indonesian foreign policy or reorient it, or even at the margins. And so when we look at his track record as defense minister, we can see some evidence that he wants to engage the West more deeply, but that was, that was really limited to defense procurement. He wanted really modern, cutting-edge systems for the Indonesian military. He felt like the fact that they weren't getting those was holding Indonesia back. Uh, as a former uh, general officer uh, in Abri, the, the predecessor of the, the current uh, military, that seemed to be something that he was very focused on. And I imagine he would continue to focus on that as president. The plans are for over $125 billion in defense spending uh, over the next 20 years. That's quite a lot for a country like Indonesia. But I don't think you'll see big changes from Indonesia's non-aligned stance, except, again, at, at the margins. And, and there are structural constraints in the Indonesian domestic policy-making, uh, foreign policy-making apparatus that will hold him back from making very big changes. The Indonesian foreign ministry actually exercises quite a bit of influence over Indonesian foreign policy, has quite a bit of discourse power in the Indonesian system for a ministry that doesn't really control any patronage. And it has been very successful, even when Jokowi has wanted to sort of deviate from Indonesian foreign policy doctrine. He's sometimes uh, found that dip difficult, especially on the Middle East, actually, where he wanted to do some things that were with the Trump administration and in light of the Abraham Accords that the Indonesian foreign ministry was very much against. And so I would expect Prabowo to actually face some of the same constraints and perhaps push on open doors, not closed ones, and therefore focus more on domestic policy than on foreign policy. But it'll be a much more entertaining guest at multilateral dinners, things like the G20 and APEC. Well, you've half answered my next question, which was sort of to, to, to zoom in on the bilaterals with Washington and Beijing. Both of the major powers will court him, no doubt, from now on. You've suggested that from the U.S. perspective, there's a there's scope to, to dangle military you know, defence goodies. What could Beijing offer him? What would they want in return? Can we expect any major changes in either of those relations? Or is it sort of going to apply here too, where we expect to, nothing to be radically different? Yeah, it was interesting. Just on those earlier campaigns, Barboa was always very clever about how he did this. He used really strident national rhetoric. And so one of his most famous lines on the stump in 2014 and 2019 was that foreign countries were fattening the calf before the slaughter. And this was how he analyzed investment in Indonesia for his audiences. But he allowed his audiences to imagine whatever boogeyman they wanted, whether it was China, which was actually doing a lot of the investment, or America at Freeport, the big mine in Papua, that's been a, a source of controversy. And so he didn't really name one or the other. But many of his audiences presumably thought about China when he, when he raised those. But just this weekend, the Chinese ambassador, Liu Kang, who's a very sort of sophisticated, not a, not a wolf warrior ambassador, he visited Prabowo at his house on Jalan Kartanegara. And so the United States is waiting to congratulate Prabowo until the official election results come out on March 20th. And other countries, Australia included, Singapore, but also China, are getting in and congratulating him early. And I wonder if that doesn't cause a little bit of disquiet at the State Department or in the White House, that they're, they're now sort of on the back foot or that they're slow movers and that Prabowo might hold this against them. But when you look at Prabowo's history with the United States, what's so striking about it is that this is someone who was very close to the Americans. And he, he was often 
He's fond of saying that when he was in the army, he was the American's fair-haired boy. And he doesn't, for a nationalist in a country where America is not always terribly popular, it's remarkable that he says this. And when he was banned from the United States uh, under the torture convention, there was a visa ban on him from 2001 to 2020, he instantly sought to be readmitted to the United States to be able to make personal visits. He was repeatedly rejected, but he never seemed to hold that against the United States. And you could compare him to Rodrigo Duterte, who had a, a similar experience, was interrogated, I think, at the Miami airport over a visa issue before he was president and held it against the United States for a long time. And so the fact that he went to Washington as defense minister and was greeted by secretaries of defense kind of suggests that that period in his life where he was banned from the United States didn't leave a very deep impression. He doesn't seem to hold a grudge against the United States for that. And that is kind of remarkable and perhaps an indicator that as president, he won't be hostile to American interests and that the U.S. need not worry that this is somebody who feels betrayed by them, which perhaps another personality might. On China, Hmm. it's interesting to note, in early 2020, there was a standoff around the Natuna Islands between Chinese Coast Guard vessels and Indonesian military and and law enforcement assets. It's the most number of assets that they've had in that area before or since. Prabowo was a new minister. There were other ministers in Jokowi's cabinet who were quite quick to criticize China during this period, and the Jokowi seems to have believed were raising tensions. Prabowo, for whatever reason, whether it's because he was new and he didn't want to um, get out in front of Jokowi, or because he takes a different line with China, was very laid back about this. He and Luhut Panjaitan, who I mentioned earlier, who was really sort of the brains behind Jokowi's political operation, they were both very laid back on this. And Luhut is seen as someone who's pro-China within Jokowi's cabinet because he has been done a lot to attract Chinese investment to Indonesia. And so that was very striking to see him and Luhut sort of lined up on the same side in that internal policy debate. So again, I go back to this this view of, of President Prabowo or you know, a, a President Prabowo that he won't be particularly pro-American, particularly pro-China. His coalition has a lot of people who are dependent upon China for business deals. He clearly wants defense investment from the West. And so I think that will balance things out and it will keep him in that sweet spot of Indonesian foreign policy, which is fundamentally non-aligned and where the rest of the system is as well. Well, that's a great place to for my final question, which is to bring Australia into the picture. My assessment is that you know, AUKUS reservations notwithstanding, there's a great deal of structural stability in the bilateral relationship because the two countries do have overlapping interests on the big questions of order and the strategic landscape. Um, If you were giving advice to to DFAT or to the foreign minister, what would you say is one major opportunity and perhaps one major risk to be focusing on as Prabowo takes office later this year? I think just to background this, the relationship between Australia and Indonesia is in a fundamentally good place. That is primarily down to work that was done during the Turnbull government, where he established a really good, deep personal relationship with President Jokowi, and then even went to Jakarta to reassure President Jokowi after he was, after the spill in 2018, that Jokowi should adopt the same approach with Prime Minister Morrison. And the Labour governments continued to build on that very good relationship. What I would point out as a risk is what my colleague Evan Laksmana who was uh, previously at CSIS in Indonesia, is now with us here at IISS in Singapore, has highlighted as the risks of a kind of strategic divergence, where Australia, 
being much more clearly in the U.S. camp under this government and the previous one, and Indonesia being much more firmly non-aligned, where the two countries begin to diverge strategically. And Evan has encouraged both sides to really work on trying to make sure that the bilateral relationship is resilient against that kind of strategic divergence. I actually think Australian governments, past and present, have done a really good job of making sure that it is resilient against that kind of divergence. And the, the upcoming summit with Australia hosting ASEAN leaders in Melbourne, initiatives like that are very helpful in enabling Australia to be able to do that. But I also don't think that the strategic divergence is necessarily as much of an issue for the bilateral relationship as, as others do. It's clear to me that Indonesia really appreciates the kind of firm, assiduous partnership and friendship that Australia provides. And there's now even discussion about a, a defense agreement and a, a security treaty. So those are sort of the next steps for the Australia-Indonesia relationship. And I don't think they're going to be radically changed by the result of this election. Okay, terrific. Well, thanks very much. This has been very informative for me. Thank you. I've been inviting sort of first-time guests on the podcast since I resumed to share a memory or, or a thought of Alan. You guys would have crossed paths when you were working at Lowy. So please, do you have something you can share with us? Yeah, there were moments in the past week when I was on the ground in Jakarta that I was sort of imagining what Alan's reaction would be to some of the things that I saw and heard and sort of imagining a wry smile and a kind of oblique quip. When I first arrived in Australia in 2014, I went to Canberra and I visited Alan at his home and he was incredibly gracious. I was a young sort of American and I think the tendency is to assume that we Americans, when we come to Australia, we think we know everything and we're going to tell everyone in Australia how to think about the world. I didn't quite do that. But Alan was very patient with me as someone who had a much deeper knowledge and understanding of Indonesia and Southeast Asia in explaining how Australian policy had developed, but also his knowledge of the region. And so I really counted on him for advice and would go back to visit him and and seek his advice repeatedly. And it is, is just such a loss. And I think we, all of us who knew him, you certainly, I was was a, a listener of the podcast when you were both on. And I listened to the podcast that you did afterwards, and it's just is just a, a, such a, a, a tremendous loss to, to have him pulled off the field, as you said, at this critical moment on Australian foreign policy. And so I think I, along with a lot of other Australians, are constantly thinking about what Alan would say or what Alan would think about a particular situation, and that's actually quite a, quite a good legacy to leave. Thank you. Thank you very much. Our final segment is reading, listening, and watching. Would you like to recommend something for our audience? Sure. This is not a particularly contemporary suggestion, but when people ask what can they read to understand Indonesia, I always recommend Pramudiananta Tours, Bumi Manusia, so This Earth of Mankind. It's part of his four books called the Buru Quartet, because I didn't really understand the kind of deep mental impression that colonialism left on Indonesia until I read it. And it, in it, the same way that a book like Chinua Achebe's Things Fall Apart illustrates the way, the toll that colonialism took on other societies, this really brings it home for someone who has to work or, or live in Indonesia. And I think it was in, incredibly helpful in understanding that dynamic and also how we as people who are, are not Indonesians, as foreigners, can be a good friend to Indonesia, whether it's through foreign policy or on an individual level. So I thought that was incredibly helpful and I, I recommend it to anyone who asks. Thank you. Well, my recommendation is of, of, of other podcasts that are in the same field as me. I mean, I, as 
You all know I took a, a few months off and one of the things I did in preparing for this episode was listen to recent episodes of the National Security Podcast hosted by Roy Medcalf, my colleague here at the ANU, and, and several Lowy Institute pod- podcasts, including one that was uh, that was recorded just after the election. And both of them, just before the election for the National Security Podcast and just after the election for, for the Lowy Podcast, were extremely, extremely insightful. And, and I learned a lot and they helped me prepare to talk with you today, Aaron. So it's not just Australia in the world in this space. There's a lot of great podcasts uh, on Australian foreign policy. So you can definitely learn a lot if you go looking. So with that, Aaron, this was a fantastic conversation. Thank you. I learned a lot. I really appreciate you going into to that level of detail about Indonesian politics. There were, as you know, some areas I didn't get a chance to get to, but this was more than enough, very dense, very informative. I'm very grateful. And I hope that I can invite you on again in the future to talk these issues once more. Thanks so much, Darren. It was uh, really my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on. That's all for this episode of Australia in the World. For research and audio editing, I thank Corbin Duncan and, of course, Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. That's all, and we'll talk to you again soon.